Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Jambele. As always, I'm delighted to share this space and time with you as you continue to bring you insights and observations from our esteemed guests who have a much wealth of experience in their respective field. As always, I'm not Frank Solo. I'm Frank Boyavosimasinga and Harry Seleke. And I want to thank them in advance for the sterling work they do. As we proceed, I think it will be criminal of me not to echo country's pride after the nail-biting sensational victory over incredible New Zealand. There is no doubt in my mind that the standards of rugby has reached different level as the country has won the Web Ellis uh, Cup four times. Uh, meanwhile, I think it's important for us to rally around the cricket team to reach the highest level of the World Cup as well. My takeaway point in this point is that South Africa, um, as South Africans, we can change the country's economic fortunes, provided we hold each other accountable and strive for perfection in the same way the Boke did. Moving along, I hope you've enjoyed our last conversation on the operationalization of the Continental Free Trade Agreement. Uh, that's a conversation I've had with Ambassador Solmolobi who painted a very intriguing developments which suggest indeed there are pockets of excellence that are emerging, especially when you look at developments such as the Pan-African payment and settlement systems, the BRIC Bank, and, and those and eight countries that were uh, selected to almost like become guinea pig in terms of the trade agreement. Anyway, if you missed that particular show, not to worry. Simply visit our website and retrieve that particular link or any of the link for that matter and share your views with us, uh, 34519. In today's conversation, we are putting a laser sharp uh, focus on the role of business amidst wars happening in the Middle East, uh, Europe, and of course here in the continent of Africa. You know, we had invited Dr. Amni Asfo, who is the African Business Council. You know, unfortunately, she's unable to make it, you know, due to different time zones back in the, Arab, in, in the Caribbean at this point. It is two o'clock in the morning, so we just have to go proceed without her. In any case, we've got two competent folks that will make this conversation pleasurable or this quagmire unravel pretty well. Um, we're joined by Professor John Piddley Foster, who is the Dean and a Director at the Henry Business School, as well as Mr. Herman Pretorius, who is the Head of Strategic Communication and Race Relations. While my guests are getting ready to share their insights and perspective on yet another complex issue, which relates to the role of business community amidst wars, I quickly want to reflect on the verdict dished out by the Minister of Higher Education, Dr. Blendis Amande, uh, wherein he put UNISA under administration. UNISA sadly now joins the likes of the University of Zululand, uh, Walter Sisulu, 
Tswane University of Technology, Val, Val University of Technology, and Central uh, University of Technology. I mean, this is utterly shocking and embarrassing to say the least, as these universities obviously have uh, councils and an all number of uh, control environments that are supposed to give confidence to you and I in terms of how we perceive this. As if, as if that's not enough, uh, the AG uh, indicated, you know, in the, in the latest audit that eight of the 26 public universities failed to obtain clean audit. As we all know, clean audit is, an, is, an, is a quality standard which all organizations must accomplish if they are worth their salt. My bone of contention is that one can understand governance mayhem at municipalities in its common cause that the appointment of unqualified officials, politicization of administration, exchange competence and impunity terrorizing the local government space. One is not expected to understand why institution whose core business is to teach the very same municipality governance and management issues only to be found wanting on the same issues. The sad part for me is that these kind of issues cast a, a negative light on qualifications, which is grossly unfair uh, to students and academics. Anyway, as I've alluded, uh, uh, we are joined by, by, jo- by Professor John Piddeley, who is a dean and director at Henley Business School, as well as uh, Herman Pretorius, uh, who is the head of strategic communication at Race Relations. Gentlemen, welcome uh, to Beyond Governance. Thanks for your time. Welcome. Uh, lovely. Good morning. Thank you very much. Um, as we proceed, Prof, I mean, our topic is quite loaded and very complex, I'm, I'm sure. Kicking off this conversation, I want to, you know, quote uh, Edmund Burke, who once said, all that is necessary for triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And we've seen it. So in this context, the good man has to be the business community. Um, that may be set in the scene. Uh, right. we, we have we have noted that over the past decade or so, we have seen a decline of peace around the globe. Violence, terrorism, and civil wars have become increasingly prominent. Let me start with John, who obviously heads a, a prestigious university in the continent. John, your overall of assessment of these wars and, and what, what should be the role of business in responding to this quagmire? Well, let's look at the, the first one you talked about. <laughs> and you're quite right. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling that somebody who teaches management should, you know, fall into administration. But I just want to make a couple of points. The first thing, what people don't teach is, is the practice of management. They teach theory of management, which is often in an academic world. And the practice of management is very, very different. And um, and I think it's a big mistake because what does a country need? It doesn't need a bunch of administrators. I mean, if the universities who teach management can't run their own institutions and make it work, then what are they teaching that's useful? You know, because what you need to do is teach people practical stuff that allows them to make systems work, make people engaged, use intelligence well, understand what a business model is, understand how to make things work and be committed. It's um, it's a fallacy to think that you can learn a lot of theory and just run a business. So firstly, I'd say we're teaching the wrong things. And it's the failure of these organizations just proves it. Because if you had people in those organizations who truly knew how to run a business through experience, you'd be able to teach that stuff as well as the theory, which should, I mean, all theory is, is 
somebody asking a lot of people who've done something reasonably well how they did it and then aggregating it into a, into a kind of line of cause and effect. And that cause and effect should say, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, I should get this, this outcome. But um, what happens is the context change. So theory should be useful, but what we've got is a, its own—it's almost like a cult, really. I think it's the—it's uh, the priesthood teaching teaching stuff that's really important uh, in their world, but actually is shown not to be effective. Now that's a fairly cruel assessment, but why we need to have stark assessments is there's a lot at stake here. We've got the highest Gini coefficient in the world in South Africa, the highest unemployment in the world in South Africa. And we've also got a lot of extremely intelligent people who probably don't think they are, who've been excluded from useful education. Because only about 6% of South African school starters get a degree within within six years of leaving school. If you go to countries like the UK and other, it's about 50%. And that is is not because people are haven't got the capability, it's because the system and the education system is failing them. Um, and that is much deeper than trying to blame individual professors and academics who I'm sure are really nice people. But it's about a mentality about how you educate and give people skills so you can lift an economy. And we've got it all wrong. The, the, the amount of skills we need to build this country um, is so vast that the institutions themselves, even if they were running well, wouldn't be able to deliver it. But with this sort of debacle, you've got a situation where the um, public institutions of education, with some great exceptions and no disrespect to very good people within them, simply can't deliver what we need. And we have to look elsewhere if we're going to get a thriving economy. The interesting observation there, Prof. Now that you've ventured on that particular issue, let me just quickly bring in, you know, Hammond, your observation on what Prof has already indicated, because obviously we'll still come back to the gist of our conversation, which is, you know, business communities response to financial wars that we've seen globally. Hammond, your take? I think uh, the question of these wars and the situation of seeing uh, once great institutions with so much potential like UNISA being placed under administration actually share a very important question, and that is what is their purpose? Your Edmund Burke quote is, I think, so valuable, and I'm going to sort of try and add to the conversation by venturing a Martin Luther quote where, and this is now applied in in a very narrow Christian context, but the, the principle remains, is the job of the Christian shoemaker is not to sew little crosses onto shoes, but to make good shoes. And I think that is, if we apply it to a broader context, the job of responsible business or the responsible university or the responsible entity isn't to sow their moral values onto their product, but to deliver good products, to understand what is their unique value-add contribution that they can make. And in the case of a university, it is very much in a South African context to understand what is it that the economy needs to flourish and how can that university offer that skill set. For example, if we look at the education system uh, Professor John mentions, we're in a country where for every 100 grade ones starting their 12-year school journey, 
just five of those initial 100 grade ones will pass matric 12 years later with more than 50% in mathematics. In a country where we are moving towards an economy where between 24 and 28% of our economy is dependent on the financial services sector, and we don't have the feeding of skills to actually improve, man, equip, labor, innovate within that sector, we are setting ourselves up for a failure because the purpose of the education system has gone from producing good graduates to perhaps more of a focus on sowing the moral values or the ideological or political pursuits of the entity onto the products, as it were, the pupils they deliver into our economy. So taking that into account and then applying it to the conversation of the role of business and the responsibility of business within conflict situations, I think there is a golden thread that runs through there where it is crucial for these entities, whether they're academic, corporate or commercial at whatever scale, to understand what it is that they need to provide in a product and focusing on providing that that product to a high level of quality. Because if we don't do that, then we do see not only the collapse of state entities or state-owned entities, we also see the focus of businesses moving away from what it is that they ought to offer their client. Then we get to that point of Professor John saying, if we allow the theory to become more important than the practical question of value add, then we are going to see a situation where there's an increasing disconnect between a client base, a consumer base, and businesses ultimately delivering goods and services. Thank you very much for those kinds of observations, which are obviously set a very interesting tone on how we're going to attack perhaps maybe this very complex issue that is before us. On that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Timbele. Uh, we having a very interesting conversation uh, with uh, John uh, uh, Foster Peterley, who is the Dean and a Director at Henley Business School, as well as Herman Pretorius, who is the Head of Strategic Communication um, at, at, at Race Relations. The, the, the question that we're grappling with is, is around the role of business communities amidst wars. Um, let's take out that, that conversation slightly further, uh, John. And, and the, the, the issue, obviously, we, we know that, um, you know, wars have a devastating and disproportional effect on, on businesses, community. Obviously, you know, let's take out the businesses that are involved or industry that are involved in arms and ammunition because that's their core business. So they tend to obviously benefit in these kind of circumstances. But they, they are a fraction 
a fraction in the global uh, business communities. So which means we need more and more business communities having their say, uh, purely because the relationship between business and society are, are intertwined. You know, they influence each other. Your take on that uh, as we proceed to get into what is happening in Europe, what is happening in Middle East, what is happening in Africa. Yeah, I mean, just imagine a picture of Kiev or anywhere, you know, before the bombs have landed and then after the bombs have landed, you know, buildings that work, communities that are there, people going to work, restaurants that are open, factories that are moving, people taking kids to school, buses moving. And then after that, all you see is desolation and, you know, people fleeing the war zones, business stopping. And so you can imagine, you know, you don't have to be a genius to understand that the devastation of that sort of war on anything that we take to be normal life, uh, the things we take for granted. I mean, it's massive. We, we complain hugely about our, our load shedding or power cuts. It's nothing compared with what's happening in those parts of the world. It's nothing compared with what people are having to do to try and uh, get into places where their families have a better life. So war is, of course, it's, it's, it's a devastation and it's driven by ideological reasons. It's driven by power. It's driven by criminality sometimes. It's, and you know, you've got this awful situation whereby, um, when somebody attacks you, what do you do? And so we all spend a lot of money on our police and our security services, our intelligence, our armed forces, all these things to keep ourselves safe from other human beings who who act in ways that human beings over the millennia have always acted in a tribal and a defensive and attacking way. And it's it's terribly dangerous. It's awful. And the, the big problem now is that the weapons we use for this, both in terms of real physical weapons and weaponization of AI and other things we can do, um, means that we have uh, huge stakes. So, yes, it's the most terribly destructive thing. So how do we manage a balance of all these things that are part of our beings as humans and somehow manage to keep things running? Because these aberrations and um, the aggressions are not just going to go away. We have to manage them extremely, extremely well. And it's phenomenally difficult to do so. And, and it's very hard to do that, you know, simply with ideologies because ideologies crash, clash. You have to work out how to handle people. So, yep, it's an absolute nightmare and the stakes are getting higher. I couldn't agree with you more. The most important word that you, that I'm taking from you is the fact that, you know, some of these things are here to stay. Ideology is here to stay. Unfortunately, issues of religion are here to stay and, and, and criminality because we have a lot of unethical people. What is important is the need to manage and which is a very complex issue because of the, of the interest that that is at stake. Your take on that, Herman? Um, I want to throw another uh, uh, scenario into the mix uh, uh, that that will, I think, I add, think to add to the weight of the conversation that we are uh, having here, and that is the question of Taiwan. Now, we see the conflict in the Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian conflict, uh, the Russian aggression there. We see the escalating conflict in the Middle East. But something that sort of keeps me up at night is 
the idea that these might be preparatory steps towards a larger conflict that ultimately likely centers on the relationship between the United States and China over the question of Taiwan. Now, without delving too deeply into the geopolitics of it, we can look at the economics of it. Taiwan in the last 40 years positioned itself as the world's leading producer of microchip and microprocessing technology, not necessarily in the design of these technologies, but in the manufacturing of these technologies. So we are in a situation where almost 70% of the world's microchips, including about 60% of the microchips used in China, are manufactured in Taiwan. We use these manufactured, we use these manufactured goods from Taiwan in, in our businesses, um, across the world, in our personal capacities, in every device that is being designed and the technological progress that is dependent on this little piece of technology. And the question then becomes, if we suddenly lose as a global economy, Taiwan's productive capacity and export capacity for microchips, just imagine the shock on the global economy and the shock on small businesses who increasingly rely on technologies because they simply cannot afford uh, the, the larger labor forces that might be needed should technologies like the microchip suddenly take a knock. That being said, I think to start to unpack this morally complex question, it really comes down to what is the purpose of a small business or even a large business for that matter. And to within that context, understand then as a secondary point, the meaning of good corporate citizenship. And it becomes very difficult if we see our businesses as moral agents. Now, of course, we almost can't get away from that in a, to a certain extent, but I think it becomes incredibly difficult for businesses to navigate the various currents of every sort of conflicting narrative or view or ideology, whether it is from your more mundane questions that we might see within the culture wars to the bigger questions of allegiance and sympathies in actual wars, these things become very difficult in the sense that they um, muddy the waters for a business to understand its client base. We are now in a situation where many of our businesses, incorporating the view from America almost, that they have to participate in social issues, that they now have um, banks and coffee-making companies getting involved in issues of um, gender rights and sexual preferences and social issues. And one has to pause and think, is that really the purpose of a big business or a small business to, to provide social moral commentary? And I think the, the, the nub of the argument against that is perhaps what could give some semblance of rationality to this discussion in, in a global context is to say that the purpose of a business is to deliver a product or a service to their client at a competitive cost. If we move 
from that as the point of departure without getting into the difficulties of supply chains and economic disruption through wars, we can perhaps start to untangle the question of whether businesses should pursue to take positions on issues like conflict um, in, in, in the Middle East or in Ukraine, and whether that is actually to the benefit of the service or product that that business is trying to pr- provide to its consumer, uh, to its client base. So ultimately, I think if we can crack that code, as it were, of defining what a responsible business can do, it gives us something of an avenue to an answer for the larger question. Then perhaps later in the conversation today, looking at supply chain risk management and alternatives to down uh, the you know downstream effects of supply chain interruptions, that is perhaps the second more financially quantitative question to look at. But I think if we look at the first one of, you know, what's the moral responsibility of a business within the context of a conflict, we have to get back to that core question of what is the purpose of this business and will engaging in social commentary one way or the other truly advance that business in terms of its commercial viability? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I agree with you, but maybe let me just uh, uh, put a position here. One is that there's already been a precedent uh, in how businesses are engaging with unethical um, uh, environments. Let's take, for an example, issues around child labor. Um, most businesses have become very vociferous around um, and how they need to, to engage or respond to uh, countries that, that, that abuse human rights. We've seen a lot of withdrawal. Surely that, that has been the basis. The other point that you raised, which I completely agree with, uh, is that of, 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 um, you know, social, um, what is the sexual orientation, you know, uh, xenophobia. Business have already responded to those kind of issues. So given that precedent, there's a need to perhaps maybe elevate the conversation that looks at including geopolitical issues and, and, and how far it's a bigger question. Perhaps maybe John in his uh, uh, standing could give us a perspective on, on how to leverage on, on the existing uh, precedent around rights that has been established, which is the basis for Modern, for, for modernity, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to construct arguments that are, you know, cerebral and tidy and clean about issues where of, of human issue, um, where there's so much human suffering. You know, businesses built on a lot of businesses built on the idea that you know you, you you're there to make a profit. The Milton Friedman sort of approach, um, shareholder management. And the externalities, the damage that may be done by by pollution or whatever it is you're doing um, in the environment is, is handled by government. But the truth is that in many countries, those externalities simply aren't handled by government. And, and in our country, they're most certainly not. And so you have to ask yourself, that what are the obligations of a business? And a business is... It's not just about creating a, a product for profit. It's about creating value and an eternally evolving sense of value. And sometimes that value is perceptual for people. 
Sometimes it's beneficial, you know, you can have addictive sort of businesses that thrive very well. And sometimes it's very useful. But in my view, businesses should be creating prosperity for society through the cumulative value of what they create. And it's completely inappropriate to say that businesses have no accountability for what they do in society. And that is that is up to government to handle. We do have accountabilities to humans. We have accountabilities to our people. We have accountabilities to the world we live in. And where the laws are not up to it, we have to have some sort of collective approaches towards this. Otherwise, you're going to get massive movements in the world. And so there should be fighting what's happening to our climate, challenging oil um, consumption, challenging use of carbon, whatever it, whatever it is we are we're doing it's, it's not an accident that we have the highest Gini coefficient in the world in South Africa. It's not purely a result of, of the, of the past either, although that's a massive contribution. It's, it's a cumulative effect of not applying resources into education, into healthcare, into, into housing, and particularly into human welfare. And while I do understand the very different approaches towards what businesses should do and that you don't have an involvement, you know, into making statements of activism or taking a position. I very strongly hold that businesses have an obligation to take a position on issues of society. And in fact, the very sense of leaders doing that fills the vacuum of leaders who should be doing it in the politics, etc., and who aren't. And that where you have a gap like that, who's going to stand up? And I think as business leaders, you have to have a position. And I also think it makes your leadership stronger. Nobody is particularly interested in following a sort of cyborg or a theoretical robot. What they want is to follow human beings that they resonate with, who they believe in, who they think will take them somewhere better, and who, by the evidence of what they see and what they consume, start to believe in what that organization does. And that also is what builds reputation for organizations. Because brand and reputation are a massive intangible asset, sometimes worth 90% of the business's total value. And that belief system and that community, if you like, that's built around them are things of great value. And they're messy, of course. You know, there is an argument that um, Deming, who is the father of quality, used to say, if you can't, you know, that which you can't uh, measure can't be managed. And in fact, the true quote was, it's a fallacy, he said. It's a myth that... Um, that you can't, uh, only what you measure can be managed. And I was looking at this the other day, actually, in sort of a challenge to somebody on, on LinkedIn. And the fact is that there's so much in our life that is about community, about identity, about um, the way we want to live and, and the values we have that you can't just put into a piece of paper or a corporate chart. You have to live these things. And going back to what um, Homer was saying earlier about the, the cross on the shoe, I mean, I totally agree with that. You have to make products of things of quality. But the issue of that is how do you make things of quality that lift people as well? On the education system, if you go back to it, you have to make education of quality that meets people. And maybe the quality you need is not perfect, it's adequate. You need adequate education for people so that they can get employment so they can build things. You don't need a perfect education. You need one that is continually improving. You need an education that is resonating with people and and one that is led by people who are connected somehow with the realities of our community and society. Um, and so I think it's it's a wonderful fugue 
to go into theoretical and abstract con- contemplation all the time about business. But as Henry Mintzberg said in his early studies of management, managers roll up their sleeves and put their hands in their mud and get messy. That is the business of business. And so while you can talk, what is the construct of business and how we should contribute to the world and what the boundaries of, of business are that we should or should not comment. And many people say that corporate leaders should not comment on current affairs. They should only be focusing on, on a narrow construct of value based on stakeholder uh, capitalism. I don't think that's true at all. There's a, there's a wonderful book by the ex-dean of, um, of Said Business School called Prosperity where he attacks the basis of corporate law and says that we now need to understand that the purpose of the business is far more than that. It's about cumulatively creating prosperity, and we have to buy into that. Now, of course, there's massive pushback against that. But that is another trend that's happening in the world now for us to see that the old constructs of what business were uh, inherited over the last 50 or 60 years are under attack and under, and under reconstruction as well. And, of course, that is a challenging and messy field. Uh, full of arguments. So I think that's an area that business schools need to get into, that corporate leaders need to get into, and we need to have a stance, and you need to show your humanity too. Thank you very much for that insight. Um, Let's take a quick break while um, um, I'm sure Alan Hammond is burning with with, uh, desires to respond to some of the issues that John uh, uh, commented on. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is uh, Beyond Governance. Uh, if you have missed out, uh, you've got an opportunity to to tune in and really get a, an interesting perspective from my esteemed guest. Um, we are joined by John Foster Pederney, who is the Dean and a Director at the Henley Business School, as well as uh, Herman Pretorius, uh, who's, the, um, who's the communication expert at, at race relations. Uh, before, we t- before we took the break, you know, John made some interesting comments uh, just to bring you in. Uh, it's about really understanding the complexity of business and the need for business community to have a, a stand. And, and what I also liked about uh, John's commentary is, is reflecting or juxtaposing that statement with the current, uh, you know, economic posture of the country. South Africa is among the, is the most unequal society in the world. And, and, and that Gini coefficient, um, indicator is a byproduct of a number of, of, of mistakes that have accumulated to where we are at. And had business made its position clear from day one, the chances are there would have been remedial. Um, action that, that needed to have been taken. But anyway, let me just pause there and bring in Hammond. It's a very interesting historical case study is to consider the collapse of apartheid and the pressure that corporate interests leveraged over that. 
And when one looks at the facts there, one finds that the key question that led South African businesses to pressure the government at the time to, at first, soften apartheid and ultimately uh, bring it to an end, was the question of labor and skills availability. It's very easy to aggrandize business leadership into something that it might not be, and yet we shouldn't dismiss what it is. It's not a question of staring oneself blind by theory. It is a, it is a question of how practical are you going to be in the business of doing business, if I can use John's phrase. So the question of responsible corporate citizen citizenship under apartheid was a question of the business of doing business, the question as mundane as the accessibility and availability of labor. And because apartheid legislation made labor convolutedly unavailable, there was pressure for uh, labor reforms that started in the early 60s that culminated in the legalization of unions and empowered the sort of legislative reforms that ultimately led to the collapse of apartheid because simply the corporate um, uh, pressure became unbearable. That wasn't a question of theory, nor was it a question of social commentary or moral leadership from an aggrandized business class or a self-aggrandized business class. It was a question of whether businesses can produce competitively for their clients the products and services they needed and a moral offshoot materialized into an objective societal benefit. So when we are talking about this question, the moment we insert a measure of um, uh, ideological responsibility into the business lingo of our country, we must acknowledge that it is going to have an effect on whether these changes get buy-in at all. If a business is characterized as ideological rather than commercial, then any uh, societal stakeholder, whether that's government or the citizen, will see it as such, and it will possibly lessen the impact that business might have in its pragmatic arguments for the moral good of the society. So the question here becomes, as John points out, and as I think I said in my first statement, a question of value add. If a business considers its role as value add in producing a product and offering a service and social commentary, then it is completely up to the consumer whether they reward that business for that particular value add definition. And I would wager in many instances that would be the case. Uh, Nimrod, you mentioned child labor. I think that is a excellent example here where we can say that child labor is, if we take it in the most clinical, cynical sense, a source of cheap labor and the free market capitalist should therefore have some sympathy with it. But that's not the point I'm making. Child labor became so morally repugnant that businesses were willing to be honest about the fact that their products will be and services will be more expensive because they 
refused to make use of child labor. And the consumer came to the judgment that if I'm going to pay a higher price because child labor, a cheap form of labor, is no longer available, that is something I'm willing to do. The question ultimately becomes, what is the consumer willing to spend money on? Child labor died as a formal uh, question when in many parts of the world, of course, it's not quite dead yet, which is travesty. But child labor became uh, illegal in the industrialized world throughout the last two centuries. Uh, precisely because the morality of the question became a price worth paying for the consumer. So the point I'm making isn't that the business has no moral responsibilities or corporate citizenship has no social component. It is that we must look at the facts of the dismantling of apartheid from a purely pragmatic point of view because of apartheid's economic idiocy, putting labor beyond the reach of businesses that needed it, but also just be honest about the fact that the value a company might consider itself offering to its consumer includes its product and its service, but also its ideological or social or moral commentary in the case of child labor. If there's a piece of, you know, some sort of product in front of the consumer and we can say one is costing a hundred rand because no child labor was used and the other is costing 40 rand because child labor was used, we will find that most consumers having a moral qualm with child labor will opt without the business needing to enforce its social commentary, but to present it as part of its value offering, we will find consumers making the moral choice. A capital market is only as moral as its consumers. That does not absolve leadership in business from its moral responsibilities, but at least consider it as part of the value-add offering of products and services, not just products and services as this called clinical, almost Ayn Randian uh, uh, interpretation of business ethics, but to be honest about the fact that the products and businesses or the products and services we offer as a business is offered in such a way because of certain moral assumptions, and that is our product. Please buy it if you agree with us on these values. That's what I'm calling for, the business of doing business, but being done with a value-add intent, a clear idea of what the purpose of the business is, and making sure that we don't over-aggrandize the idea of business leadership. I couldn't agree with you more. Perhaps maybe one point that I'm, I'm obviously, you, you and John uh, pretty much are in sync. Um, it's obviously... Um, Taking a note that, well, the role of managers, uh, in a nutshell, uh, is for them to, to, to up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. But you, you obviously getting your hands dirty has consequences and based on, on how perhaps maybe the higher moral order with, with you, you both speaking about is, is what is it that is conceived to be necessary and 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 morally upright from the consumer point of view. Um, but John made a very interesting point around creating the value, and, and creating a business, creating a value amidst wars. Obviously, the question is how do you create value? You create value by obviously being, suppose, you know, vociferous or upright about 
things that are morally irrepressible, things that are just not correct. Uh, business, the role of business, it's, it's obviously have to be a, a collective approach because you can't approach a macro issues around, you know, around violence as well as wars as, as individual entities. We need a bigger voice, a, a which obviously would have, impl- uh, would have bearing on how uh, politicians in this particular space uh, respond to those kind of pressure because without applying sufficient pressure, um, you know, to politicians, whether it is in the Middle East, whether it is in, in the Ukraine, whether it is in Africa. So those kind of issues are actually important. And that is the responsibility of the business not to become islands of success amidst, you know, convoluted and, and, and messy around because that is simply not sustainable. John, your take on that? On the concept of aggrandizing business leaders, it's really interesting. I think one shouldn't trivialize them either. I mean, the influence of business leaders, both in terms of what they're able to do and what they're able to start and the the massive um, capabilities that they now control, plus their influence that they hold, is something that is extraordinary. Um, At the same time, business is in some ways very simple. And I think you can aggrandize the ideological aspects of business, too. I don't think that business is necessarily founded in ideology per se. Um, in the very basics of business, if you reduce it to what you're doing, you're looking for something, you're looking out there for a societal need, something that people want, whether they understand it or not. Now, some of those needs are toxic, you know, fash, some of the fashion followings, vaping or whatever. People will buy those things. And you have to have a conscience about it, I believe. <clears throat> but you're looking for something that people need, and then you're trying to invent something new in an innovative way <clears throat> a new idea had to deliver that and you have to understand a business model which is not a strategy or mission is how do you how do you create something and once you've discovered that need you've got to find a way to deliver it in a way that's unique or somewhat differentiated so people will come to you because you're providing value for people and that's where the idea of conscience comes in too and i want to add a little bit more around that And once you've started creating that thing, you start building up a unique way of delivering it. And that unique system of delivery becomes what you might call your competitive advantage. Although these days, collaborative advantage is probably even more important. And once you are doing delivering something that's unique that people need, that adds value, you're doing it in a way that people can't copy because you've created a system of of manufacturing or complex social system, actually. And then you start delivering this, people reward you by purchasing it and they reward you by providing other assets, intangible assets like brand and reputation and networks. And of course, you use that money you're earning to pay back the investors you've had, pay back sometimes dividends, sometimes people have seen dividends. And then you also use that to, to build savings. But then what do you do with the surplus, which we call profit? You can either pocket it, pocket it or if you're sensible, I think you feed it back into that system that created that differential advantage in the first place. And that's this understanding, this sort of circularity. And the fact about the trouble, the critiques of Milton Friedman's sort of approach um, are, are legion. I mean, there, there is so much out there why, why people are saying um, that, that's, that's wrong. I mean, I, there were some couple of Nobel laureates like Oliver Hart and uh, Chicago's uh, Luigi's and Galas 
reject the view that shareholders care only about money. They don't. Ultimate shareholders are ordinary people who, in addition to caring about money, and um, and obviously they're repulsed by the idea of child labor, and that's why you have so much activism now. Um, and they're repulsed by the idea of damage to our um, environment. And they are upset by the lawmakers, and they are rejecting of business leaders who don't share those values because they matter to them, not transactionally, but viscerally in their whole identity about their futures. And, and people miss this at their peril, ab- abstracting business, abstracting ideas, and, and thinking that business can only be explained in cerebral and detached ways is deeply wrong. People purchase electric cars to lower their carbon footprint. They buy free-range chicken, you know, and unquote, or fair-trade coffee, because, because they know that this is more expensive, but it's something they want to do. If you have a slightly cynical bent, you say, well, they're just, they're just kind of buying in a little bit of social conscience. But I don't believe they are. I mean, the people I know aren't just that. People are complex and they have, they have transactional identities. They also have very deep social identities. People are pro-social, pro-social in their day-to-day life. They, they, they take social factors into account and internalize externalities of their own behavior. If I'm damaging, they don't want to do that. So why would they not public companies to do the same? And that's why you get this massive. I think it's at our peril that you reject or trivialize the movements of people trying to improve the world. You can also, you can easily dismiss them, but you can't dismiss the consequences of them that are around us all the time. And those consequences, which will inevitably have of migration and clearly of climate change now that we are, it's not even climate change, it's breakdown that we are suffering and engaging. You know, we have facts from the university I work in that that Africa is warming faster than much of the rest of the world. And and in Africa, we're warming about as fast as some other countries in Africa. But Johannesburg is warming faster than Cape Town. These data is being collected. There's a wonderful uh, website called Show Your Stripes that indicates this sort of thing, uh, run by Professor Ed Hawkins, who's a climate scientist and part of a large collegiate also. And when you look at Discovery, for example, Discovery and Adrian Gore haven't just, they are actuaries. I mean, of course they understand the mechanics of business and, and the, and the deep ideas of, you know, why they're doing things and why they've managed to get decent uh, supply lines, but they understand value as well. They really understand value. Their shared insurance, um, the shared value insurance model is good. The, the latest, um, positioning by, by, by Adrian Gore on, on, on what discovery means and what it, what it adheres to is important. People relate to that. So I think it's very dangerous to, to not in, include people's emotional and sense of who they are as well as, uh, you know, the science, if you like, a bit of, of business. You know, we have, we have business schools that, that call themselves scientific business schools. We have other business schools that are deeply based on, on, on other aspects. And I quote again Colin Mayer from, who wrote that book, Prosperity. He became, he produced a very lucid way and a lucid book about how you can change the structure of corporate governments and uh, of actually corporate law to include the sense of purpose of businesses uh, into what he, uh, in, into the way you actually manage them. I mean, Absolutely. Was, one last one. He was a very interesting uh, take on what is the purpose of business. And he said the purpose of business is 
you know, the purpose of business. What is the purpose of your business? What actually is the social contribution or the value add that you're creating for people? That is the purpose. Focus on that. Make the main thing the main thing. And, um, and of course, monetize it, of course. Absolutely. Uh, we're gravitating towards the end of our show, and, and perhaps maybe what's, what I want to pose to both of you, take into account a very interesting, um, you know, observation that you have made is, you know, business obviously needs to take a position, especially in what it conceives as morally repulsive. The question is, should, should business community be made to withdraw in instances where they, 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 they obviously feel that, you know, um, violence and war are completely unacceptable or should they be forced to withdraw? That's, that's my question. Um, Nimrod, if, if I may quickly come in here, I, there's so little of what John said that I disagree with that I almost want to underline his, his previous uh, response, which I think should be transcribed onto pamphlets and printed the world over. That is exactly right. When we talk about what a consumer is and what a product is, at no point should we, and I think I didn't, I, I don't think I did that, but at no point should we um, uh, clinicalize the consumer's mindset and value system. When we talk about products or services being offered, part of that product, and I think that's the point I'm trying to make, part of that product and part of that service is the value implications. We as human beings engage economically and we have logos on our T-shirts and on our laptops and our Apple Macs because when we associate ourselves with a product or a service, we are associating on more than just a practical, do we have a tool to get a specific job done level. We are signaling something about ourselves as a consumer to other people around us in a very social way. And that's something that I think um, uh, uh, laissez-faire capitalists quite often miss. The point is that we associate value with what we as consumers desire. And value isn't something that can just be defined in terms of do we have a tool to accomplish a specific task. Value is a much more loaded concept where that tool utilization is, of course, a massive part of it. But the question of whether we are associating ourselves with a product or a service is key to what the consumer considers value to be. So it's not about trying to divorce social value from utilized or utilitarian value of a product or service. It is to understand from a business point of view that that is something that you need to commercialize and monetize and offer to your client as part and parcel of your product. My criticism of business social commentary comes in when it is done by the back door, when it is snuck in there. 
when what I would much more respect is if businesses take John's approach to say, these are my values, these are my products and my services. When you pay for the tools that I make, you also endorse the values we espouse. I have respect for that, and I think that is what corporate citizen citizenship, responsible corporate citizenship, but but looks but again, like. Uh, Herman, uh, but back to my question, what happens when a business aren't as responsive as, as you're putting them out? Um, should they be forced to, to withdraw in, in conflict area? Or what should be the response? It is the question of what value are they offering their consumer? Ultimately, that is the question that they must square with their conscience and their uh, ledger. So it isn't a, a one-size-fits-all rule of thumb type of judgment. It comes down to the question of are they adding value through their product or service, and what is the value of that value to their consumer? Absolutely, John. John, this is how I wish we had more time on this very uh, interesting topic. Your party short, John. Well, I've learned a lot on this, and I really appreciate Herman's comments and your and your questions. It's made me think. Well. Um, I think what I would like to build on what Herman said quickly is, is this idea of the kind of revulsion of performative actions around social agreements. You know, even the UN SDGs can be misappropriated easily. Everything can be misappropriated. So sort of greenwashing or whatever washing you want to do is, is so rife. We have to actually look at ourselves in the mirror and say, are we making a difference? I mean, I'm going to tell you a very trivial story about value, but I think it's got a deeper lesson. A friend of mine goes to a tea shop in, uh, in, in England and they make fantastic cakes. They take forever to make these wonderful, elaborate cakes. People come from hundreds of miles around to, to eat them. And, and, uh, and obviously they're extremely valuable. And one day this wonderful cake was being brought out to the table by the waiter and, you know, this huge cake and the waiter tripped and fell on the floor. Cake went all over it. <laughs> Where did the value go? And at what point does that cake have value? Because it's got cost at that point. Where did the value disappear to when it smashed? And the same with the business. Where does the value accrue to you? And we have a rhetoric about what is value and we're doing this. But actually for a business, it's quite simple. That cake had value to the people who who made it when they received money for it, more than the value they put into it. It had value for the person who was buying it when they gave money and they and they gave less money than it was worth than the pleasure of eating it. So value is a is a complex construct and we have to understand that it's it's interesting to think about. And there are no very easy answers to any of this. Absolutely. John, unfortunately, yeah, John, sure. unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here. We have run out of time. Uh, thank you very much for coming through, John. Uh, for Peter Lee and, and Herman Pristores. Gentlemen, your contribution are quite insightful and intriguing in so many ways. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Nimrod. Thank you, Herman. Lovely day. We are there. That's a very, unfortunately, I'm going to have to wrap it up. It has been a very interesting conversation that I've had with Herman Pretorius, who is the uh, communication uh, strategist at Institute of Race Relations, as well as Jonathan Foster Piddley, the dean and a director at Henley Business School. Uh, unfortunately, we, like I said, we've run out of time. Let's do this again next week. Shalom.